The Indie Insider Podcast is presented by Blackshell Media, a publishing and marketing firm working to help independent video game developers reach massive audiences, publish financially successful titles, and turn game development into a career. The company also offers educational resources for aspiring and experienced developers alike, which is why we get to bring this show to you every week. For more on Blackshell Media, visit blackshellmedia.com. Hey everyone, if you can't tell, we're all pretty excited about Play NYC, New York City's first dedicated gaming convention. It's August 19th and 20th at Terminal 5 in the heart of Manhattan, and if you don't have your tickets yet, well, now is the perfect time to get them. Because you're an Indie Insider listener, you can enter the code INDIEINSIDER at checkout for 20% off of general admission tickets. That's Indie Insider, one word, and all capital letters. We wanted to make sure you had this opportunity as a thank you for joining us and following the Indie Insider podcast. So thanks, and enjoy this week's episode of Indie Insider. Welcome to Indie Insider Presents, The Road to Play NYC, a limited Indie Insider series. I'm your guide, Logan Schultz, and we're back for week two of our three-week mini-series, where I'm talking with indie developers, professionals, and companies who will all be attending Play NYC. New York City's first dedicated gaming convention. Today we're talking with a CEO who's recently started his new indie studio, a team making modern arcade games that challenge standards, an art director creating games for all different platforms, and the creative director of an animation studio that has worked with companies such as Amazon and Netflix. The convention is only two weeks away, so stick with me as we talk to these amazing individuals about their lives, their adventures, their struggles, and their advice for others. This is Indie Insider. The Play NYC convention is presented by Playcrafting, the company providing educational events and classes for aspiring game developers across America. And of course, their CEO is none other than Dan Butchko, who is back with me for a second week to give us an even deeper look at some of what we can expect at the convention, and even in this week's episode. Dan, how's it going? It's going well. Uh, Play NYC is just around the corner, and things are just heating up. Yeah, for sure. So you were on last week. We talked about Playcrafting. We talked uh, a brief overview about Play NYC, this convention um, that you are producing in New York City. I'm extremely excited about it, but I want to dive in a little bit deeper this week while I have you for just a couple of minutes. Last week, we had uh, the chance to talk to some people that are going to be coming to the convention and be showing their projects at Play NYC. Um, we got to talk to Nick from Playmatics. Uh, we talked to Ben Miller from Fabraz, um, Becky from DreamSale, and of course, Lawrence from Goodnight Games. Um, and I know you actually know all of them personally, don't you? Yeah, it's funny. I, I know, you know, out of the... 100 to 115 developers that we're having there that are showing games. I know a solid 90% of them because they've been a core part of the playcrafting community. So um, it's very easy for me to speak to each one of their stories and uh, and where they've been uh, going along here in the past several years and why I think that they're a big part of uh, Play NYC and what it represents. For sure. Uh, one thing that I thought was really cool was last week you mentioned that uh, people can actually go up onto the roof and experience things on top of Terminal 5 that are being presented by Come Out and Play, uh, which Nick talked about last week. That sounds really awesome. 
Yeah, you know, um, while Playcrafting and PlayNYC is predominantly digital games, there are a number of really passionate, successful, uh, vocal members of the community and of this convention that are um, for tabletop games and live games. So uh, when we were looking at putting the event together, we thought, you know, we really want to make sure games of all shapes and sizes are represented. Uh, if we go with live games for this event, we have to go with Come Out and Play. Nick Fortunio is a, an incredible game designer, has been making really cool games for a while now. Um, Come Out and Play as an organization. They do their own festival in New York every year. Uh, they have been a part of IndieCade. They've done stuff with us before. Just, you know, really embodying sort of the live game scene in New York. And what better way to show off that part of the community than with filling up the rooftop of Terminal 5 with those games. <laughs> um, yeah, now I'm personally hopeful that uh, that it doesn't rain torrentially or anything. Right. Um, but, uh, be, but we'll move them inside if we need to. Uh, it's just this really cool uh, open air space on top of uh, the roof that is just perfectly suited for live games. And, uh, and we couldn't be more excited about that part. And Dan, the convention actually spans over two days, right? So if it rains one day, you could still get back out onto the roof the next day, right? That's a really good point. I just hope it's not like a two-day storm. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. Well, uh, this week, we're talking with uh, some awesome people, including Josh DeBonis, who I believe uh, will be speaking at your convention, right? Right. And, uh, and Josh is involved in a few ways here. Josh is part of Bumblebear Games. They are the makers of the Killer Queen arcade cabinet, which just has blown up. Uh, it's, they started here in New York with it. I believe there's cabinets in cities across the U.S. There's a whole vibrant community of Killer Queen uh, competitors and tournaments that are going on. Um, since that got started with a, a couple of developers in Josh and his, uh, his partner in the business, uh, Nick Mikros, you know, we wanted to make sure that was at the event too. So we have a Killer Queen arcade cabinet will be on the third floor and Josh and Nick as well as their colleague Tomas Vicuna uh, will be uh, as part of a panel called the Vanguards of the New Arcade. Uh, and that's going to be just speaking to arcade game development uh, in 2017 and how it fits in with our pure, like mostly digital age and mostly um, home console and Steam and PC age in terms of video games. So um, he's been a, a really cool part of the event that we're excited to have there uh, because it presents something really different and uh, the cabinet itself it is just really cool. Um, Tomas, their, their colleague, is bringing a game that they worked on uh, with him uh, and that's called Black Emperor, another arcade cabinet, um, really stylized, like almost like neon Tokyo feel to it, um, which is really cool. Uh, and that's just going to be like a great way to be representing arcade games at the event in both the show floor and on the panels. I've actually seen that cabinet, so I didn't realize that was them until you know I had a chance to talk to Josh. But it, it's I've seen that cabinet before. It's extremely impressive. Yeah, it's really cool. It's funny. Um, they have so they have like the full on cabinet, and then um, when we launched Playcrafting a few years back. At our launch party, we had their um, their quote unquote portable version of that cabinet, and it's it's really just like this long, like 
six to eight foot long uh, board that has, I think it's a five uh, like but button setups and joystick setups in it. And then you just like sit them on top of tables and people like walk by and play. So like, it's just funny to see that like a quote unquote portable arcade cabinet is actually not at all portable. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I get it. It's like, a, it's a, it's a 10 person, um, a 10 person arcade competitive game. So I totally get it, but I, I just love, you know, seeing these developers that are, have been a part of our community since the inception of Playcrafting and how the, the games have just taken off from there. And Killer Queen has been around since before Playcrafting too. So um, we're excited to have it there. And, and I, I want more people to come to the event and have that aha moment of, whoa, I've heard of Killer Queen before. I had no idea that was made in New York. So Dan, I know you're extremely busy. You're two weeks away from the convention, so I gotta let you go so you can, you know, keep putting things together. But before you leave, I want to ask you about this live stream. You're gonna be live streaming um, a number of things from the convention, including, uh, you know, some gameplay, and are you gonna get some talks on there as well? Yeah. So um, what we're gonna do is the the talks and panels piece of the event is happening in a different space, just because it's really hard to make sure that the expo floor is really publicly accessible and can be loud, et cetera, right. um, without like muddying up uh, the talks and panels and vice versa. So the talks and panels are in a separate space, but uh, for the live stream, it's going to be all weekend long from the main stage. Um, it's going to include guests from across the event. So that's going to include a number of the developers doing live gameplay and showing some trailers, et cetera, that are part of the exhibitor side, as well as some of the speakers and panelists that are a part of those talks and panels. Um, we have partnered up with multiple high-level Twitch streamers from in and around New York City to really lead the charge on this. Again, because this is a, a great opportunity to show off what New York's got in terms of games. Why not make sure we're also using as a platform for streamers? So uh, that's really what the point of the main stage is. There's going to be a giant 20-foot screen on there. Uh, I have one of our designers, Ashley Zielinski, this amazing artist in New York. She's doing a full stage design and set design for it. Uh, I don't have the final look of it, but I can tell you that the target is to have it look like a funky... 80s uh, psychedelic living room setup, like the background of a uh, like an MTV 1980s set. Um, so we're really excited about that part too. There's going to be some old school tube TVs with like glitching graphics on them and stuff in the background. Uh, this, the stage is going to be really a, a cool focal point for the event, of course, without taking away from the multiple booths and kiosks that we're going to have all throughout. Sure. All right, Dan. Well, you go ahead, get back to work, um, put your head down, get some things put together for us. I'm super excited for Play NYC, but I will grab you again next week for the last episode of the Road to Play NYC series uh, and the Monday before the convention actually happens. So we can talk a little bit more. And I know you might have some announcements for me next week. Is that right? Absolutely. All right, cool. Dan, I will see you next week. All right. Sounds good. Two more weeks. <laughs> Two more weeks. I'll see you then. <laughs> bye bye.
my very first day, I, I almost died, actually. So uh, it, was my, it was my first international flight. It was, it was over 24 hours of like flights and airports, and I don't sleep on planes, so you know I was up for like 24 plus the previous day. So I was probably up for about 30, 35 hours. So I got there in the morning, um, and somebody from the company came and picked me up and said, we're going on this like junk boat thing. And I was like, okay. You know, I was like sort of running on adrenaline at that point. And so then I, uh, you know, we're on there, like I'm laying uh, on the top of the boat and I don't know what you know about, you know, Hong Kong, but it's, it's pretty close to the equator. So it's pretty hot up there. Boat gets to like the, the offshore from like this little island or whatever. And everybody jumps in, like swims from the boat to the shore, which is a couple hundred feet. And uh, I grew up swimming, so I was a good swimmer. So I did the same thing. Uh, swam to shore and then, you know, a little bit like, you know, maybe like 15 minutes later, like everybody kind of like swam back. And I started swimming back, and like about halfway through, my whole body just stopped working, and like I started drowning. The CEO of the company was close to me, and he was screaming to the boat, like throw like a life preserver, and everybody thought he was joking, like it was like this funny thing, and he's like, no, like this dude's like literally drowning. Well, thankfully, like he held me up, and uh, we went back to the boat, and I like threw up for the next two hours, seawater. I remember that last day, I was like, what did I get myself into? Like, I'm in this foreign country, don't know anybody, nearly died, like, like sunburned, like, you wouldn't believe, like, skin, like, yeah. It was, it was pretty crazy. That is Joe Tringali, one of the owners of Digital Continue. Before he started Digital Continue, he started Fifth Cell, and before that, he worked at a company called Funcom, an MMO publisher, which is when he almost died in Hong Kong. And funny, actually, if, uh, if it wasn't for Hong Kong, probably wouldn't have started Fifth Cell, um, because, so I was over there, and uh, they're about, or at least at the time, were about a year to two years ahead, technology-wise, uh, from the States, and so uh, we had these color handsets for phones, and... You know, I, I talked to my friend who ended up being uh, the co one of the co-founders of Fifth Cell, Jeremiah, and I told him, you know, I was like, I asked him, like, you know, what are what are people using in the states? And so he's like, oh, you know, still black and white. And I'm like, you know what? You know, I've been I was playing games on the phone, and I was like, you know, these color handsets, like, it's only a matter of time. You know, we should start a game company and like, you know, make games for these phones. And so uh, that's what we did in Fifth Cell for like the first year. Yeah. So you just decided. Hey, let's just start our own company. That did you hesitate about that? That's a pretty major undertaking. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, but I, I mean, the great thing about starting companies when you're younger is like you're naive. You know, it's like the good. It's like the good and bad. It's like you don't know what you're getting yourself into, and if you kind of did know what you're getting yourself into, you might hesitate. But if you're like a twenty, I mean, I was like twenty-one or twenty-two at the time, and you know, we were just like, why not? You know, it's like we weren't married, like had no commitments. It's like, why not start a company? And, you know, like, I feel like there's the two, the two sort of prime times to start a company are, you know, either when you're, you know, you're kind of too stupid to know what you're doing or you're really, really, really experienced and you've built up like a ton of connections, you know, but, you know, I feel like you can do things when you're young that you can't do, you know, when you've sort of established the standard of living that you need, you know, to, to survive. So you guys are young, and you decide you're going to start your own company. You're naive, but you're excited. And the company actually ends up achieving some pretty incredible things. Tell me a little bit of the inside story on Fifth Cell. Uh, that'd be, that would have to be like its own podcast. But, uh, <laughs> well, maybe no, we'll have to get you back on sometime. We can dive a little bit deeper. Yeah. 
No, so uh, Fistel's still around. Uh, two of the other founders, um, they're doing their thing over in Seattle. Um, you know, they're kind of, you know, want to want to stay a little bit smaller, but um, you know, it's still around. So you know, this, the title they're working on is super exciting. You know, me being out in New York, you know, it was sort of hard. And so, you know, at the time when, you know, we sort of got some projects canceled, you know, it, it just made more sense to start a new company out here. But um, I loved, you know, every minute of working at Fifth Cell. Like it's, you know, it's challenging. It taught me a lot. Like I learned, you know, you learn firsthand by starting a business. A lot of lessons that like that's the only way you can learn them is by actually doing, you know, and so things, you know, hiring, team management. Um, you know, how to sort of design games. Like there's a lot of just philosophical things, you know, that we did at Fifth Cell that, you know, are still continuing at Digital Continue, you know, about, you know, how to sort of, you know, look at the marketplace, you know, just sort of the high bar that the market has, the need to do things that are different, innovative, that stand out, um, you know, ways to sort of hire and build teams that are on board with that. Um, yeah, I imagine that an experience like, Fifth Cell, starting your own company, working there for you know many many years, and achieving some successes with those people that you started it with, uh, has to influence how you treat your next company, Digital Continue. Um, you know, like you said, some of your major takeaways, uh, such as how the marketplace, you know, uh, looks at game studios and, and the high bar, like you said. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So, why start Digital Continue? Uh, how did how did that come about? Um, I mean, it, when you're, I don't know, like, it, it's really all I, like, all I know, like starting companies, you know, like is the same way to people that, you know, like, you know, working for other companies is really all they all they know. It's like, I, you know, I, I, there was a brief time where, you know, I sort of looked at the market and like, well, what would it look like if I actually went and worked for somebody else? And, you know, it just, it just isn't me. Like, it's just not in me. And, you know, so like I really felt, you know, sort of called to start another company. And, you know, thankfully there was some people around that were open to that as well. And, uh, you know, so we just we went and did it. So you went and did it. You started your own company uh, again and you start working on Locks Quest. Now, that's an IP that had existed previously, like you said, and you actually did a port of the game. So uh, does Digital Continue own the rights to that IP now? No. Okay. No. No, store for hire. Okay, that's why I thought you just contracted the studio to, you know, port the game over. So, yep. was that kind of just, uh, you know, a first experience testing ground for your new company? Is that kind of how yeah, that no, felt? Yeah, no, it was. It was great. I mean, it was, it was ideal in the sense that, um, you know, your very first project is always sort of the biggest hurdle I feel for a new company. Uh, whether you're starting a company again or you're starting a company the first time, like this is a lot of companies that they start the company and then they try to release a game or get a project and it just doesn't work out. Like it's really hard to get that first project. And so for us, it was, you know, it was super exciting, you know, to actually get to work on something, um, you know, and to ship a game, like we had never shipped a game in Unity before. Uh, and so, you know, to kind of ship a game in Unity, we just learned a ton of lessons uh, that we're applying to, you know, our current game, um, you know, so able to kind of build the team a little bit, uh, you know, get some traction. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, it's really important. So I was actually checking out Next Up Hero, and it it's a pretty impressive concept. Will you tell me a little bit about it? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, essentially a game that's based around the community. So we call it Community Continue, and so one person plays a session, uh, they die, the next person kind of comes in, brings them back as a an AI follower, and then follows them around, and you know that cycle kind of continues. So it's really about the continue the uh, community. Like working together to uh, you know complete these these game sessions. So I saw that you are 
bringing this game to Steam, but also to consoles, or at least that's the goal, is how do you see that community kind of working in the console space as opposed to the PC? Um, well, we haven't finalized, you know, which sort of uh, consoles will share communities. But, uh, you know, our hope is that, you know, as many people as possible across platform are going to be able to play together. Uh, so that's our goal. You know, we'll see where we get to. Uh, you know, each community is, is different. But, uh, you know, we think the concept definitely appeals to, to you know, people on, on all consoles. Uh, what has your relationship been like with Playcrafting? Uh, positive company to work with and, you know, doing some good things? Yeah, no, I um, I went to Playcrafting was one of the first things I, I attended uh, when I moved back to New York just to kind of get a sense of the, you know, the scene. And, and I was impressed, um, you know, like, and then uh, I ended up meeting Dan, I think about a year later and, you know, just listening to his story, it like, it was inspiring. And, you know, you always look for these sort of catalysts, like, you know, people that are willing to, to dream big and, and do crazy things. And, you know, he's one of them and, you know, going from, Playcrafting being essentially nothing and like he's not even from the game industry so you know he's building connections from nothing you know just had this dream to you know to build this community and, and to see it grow and you know the playcrafting events um, you know tons of people show up you know the different seminars uh, really positive and then you know the just the sort of logical next step is to create this you know sort of consumer developer show you know in NYC which you know, I think is it's just perfect. I like that term you mentioned in there um, of catalysts, people who you know are going to do big things and and seeking out you know those things. Do you consider yourself one of those people? Do you strive to be a catalyst? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be like you know, and catalyst. It, it's you know can be sort of in the context of what you're trying to do, but you know, as a business leader, like you have to be a catalyst for your team. You know, if you don't believe in what you're doing or, or where you're going or, you know, the fact that you're going to accomplish, you know, big things, it's like, how can you inspire people to work for you? You know, and so, you know, with whatever you do, like you really want to be a catalyst for, you know, for, for, you know, sort of the market that you're in. That's an interesting point that I want to pick on just a little bit is um, team leadership. So you've started multiple companies now. You've led multiple teams at this point. It, that seems to be something that you know you must have some skills in, or, or feel like you're somewhat successful in that that team leadership aspect. What would you say to other people who want to be you know team leaders in the video game industry? Um, I, I think as a leader, like the 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 I don't know, I'm hesitant to put a number because there's a lot of them, but you know, like <laughs> a couple of the key things are you know sort of leadership by example, um, and then really you're really establishing like the vision for what you're trying to do and not necessarily feeling like you need to control how everybody does everything to achieve it. But, you know, just get them to really understand and believe like if you're going somewhere, if you're making a certain game, if you're building a product, a service community, you know, it's like, it's your job as the leader of the company to, to sort of like, you know, evangelize that vision internally. So like people know it, believe in it and, you know, and then kind of can follow it. You know, and then the other thing is just, you know, like the basics of just treating people well. You know, I feel like there's unfortunately a lot of leaders that, you know, like leadership is sort of this position and this thing to kind of like elevate themselves over others. And that's the approach that they take. Whereas, you know, being a leader really is, you know, is is making sure that your entire team is taken care of, you know, in everything that they do. Like, you know, acting is more of a, you know, like eliminate the bottlenecks, like, you know, focus on where, you know, everyone is having problems, is encountering struggles, and then, you know, sort of like use your position and influence to eliminate those. 
So Digital Continue is still a fairly young and new company. Um, and sometimes, especially when a company is getting started, it can be difficult to kind of have that, that unified vision that you were talking about. Do you feel like you guys are achieving that at this point? Is that something you want to continue to work on? Uh, it's In my experience, actually the opposite. It's the smaller you are, the easier it is to convey that. Um, just because you can have personal one-on-one sort of relationships with everybody on the team. Sure. I feel like it starts to break down probably in the 15 to 20 employee mark and becomes very, very difficult, you know, over 50 where you do need to start to actually delegate some of that vision communication to, you know, multiple people like on the team. You know, it's like organization management is, is it's just, it's like its own thing. And, you know, like I feel at different points, your, you know, your company changes, you know, your culture kind of adjusts, you know, you start to have, instead of having like, you know, a company where everybody sort of knows each other and talks to each other, you know, it's sort of, you, you get like sub, you know, like, you know, clicks and, and, you know, just subgroups and, you know, the more people you have, the more chance there is that, you know, you'll hire people that don't necessarily fit in with your company. And then, you know, there's challenges in, in trying to, you know, trying to convince them of your vision or, you know, having the, you know, convince them that maybe this isn't the best place for them to work. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Joe, I don't want to hold you too much longer. I appreciate, you know, you telling me so much about Digital Continue, starting companies, dying in Hong Kong. Like, this has been just, you know, this is a great interview. So um, I really appreciate your time. But before I let you go, at the end of every episode, I do ask my guests to share a final piece of advice, something that's resonated with you or has been true for you recently uh, that might help somebody else out there who wants to get into game development or is stuck with their own personal project. What do you want to send people home with today? I guess two things that, you know, the two generic pieces of advice I usually give is, is number one, the importance of shipping something. You know, it's like I, you know, there, I guess there are benefits in, you know, in working on things and experimenting, but like, you know, we're a product driven industry. And if you want to work in a product driven industry, you know, you need to actually ship a product. And so like, whether you're doing that on your own, you know, with a small team, you know, just like ship something, pick something that you can do, you know, that you have the resources to, you know, maybe rope in some other people to do, you know, and ship it. Like there's just that feeling of shipping something that, you know, is you just, you can't get it, you know, can't beat it. Uh, and then the second thing is, you know, is, is don't, don't count on other people to, you know, sort of like validate what you're doing. Like, you know, you really need, if you believe in something, if you have a product, you know, and you, you know, want to make it or you believe in it, you know, you just can't expect the rest of the world to be on board. Like nobody's going to be like, you're amazing. You're great. Like it's a real competitive, you know, market out there for games, you know, but like, I feel like if the burden of like not having everybody need to tell you how great you are all the time with everything, you know, it's a lot easier. Like if you just focus on making, you know, what you believe the market wants, you know, it's just, you know, makes it a lot easier. That sounds like something you've had personal experience with is others, you know, maybe not validating what you're doing, but you pushing through anyway and and having that come out of positive experience regardless. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's like, even outside of games, it's life, you know, it's like, you like perseverance like i don't know there's some article or quote or whatever i read that like you know what separates people is are you willing to try and a lot of people you know like yeah i'm willing to try until like i encounter some sort of obstacle and then i can't try anymore i'm gonna quit you know and it's just like you just you know if you really believe in something like you you can't quit like you have to continue to persevere and push through and you know, with games, it's the same way. Like you encounter, I mean, every company, like whether you're Blizzard or, you know, or just a, you know, a dev sitting at home, like you're going to encounter issues and obstacles. And there's going to be times 
you know, where it looks like it's, you know, what you're doing is, is impossible or it's going to fail or you encounter some, you know, you know, super big problem, you know, but a lot of times it's like you just keep trying and you push through it. And it's, you know, like I always tell the team and I've always told the team, you know, that the people that I want to work with are people that look at problems and then figure out how we can solve them instead of looking at problems as like obstacles to build, you know, what we're trying to build, you know, and I think when you do innovative you know, in crazy things, your your whole development is filled with problems, you know, and obstacles. And, you know, you can't look to game X or game Y to, you know, to, to reassure you that you, you know, you can actually make what you want to make, you know. But I think those type of products are, you know, like the most exciting products to do. Again, that's Joe Tringali of Digital Continue. When we spoke, he also told me that Digital Continue's new game, Next Up Hero, will be playable at Play NYC. And he's really hoping for some useful feedback and reactions from players. So make sure you find their booth at the convention. You can also follow along with Digital Continue's future exploits by finding Digital Continue on Twitter and Facebook under that name, as well as visiting digitalcontinue.com. Yeah, hi, I'm Josh DeBonis. I am a game designer, and I'm the president of Bumblebear Games. We make arcade games. Josh DeBonis makes arcade games that take the form of cabinets, installations, and even VR. His company, Bumblebear Games, calls this their platform under the name The New Arcade. Our flagship title is a game called Killer Queen. It's a 10-player arcade game, five on five. It's sort of, it's a real-time strategy platformer. And we are uh, just about to release a new game called um, Black Emperor. It's a single player, very small, fast game set in post-war Japan. Okay, very cool. Is that another, uh, is that like a physical arcade cabinet game then? Yes, it is. So, okay. with, so Killer Queen was this enormous uh, beast. It's two, two giant arcade cabinets that go back to back or side to side. And it's, it's always been a struggle just getting it in bars here to do the size. So um, one of the goals with Black Emperor is to, to try making something that's really small and relatively inexpensive and, um, and just a complement to the other game. Josh is a teacher, a creator, and an avid proponent of interactive art. He'll be speaking at Play NYC, and I feel lucky that we were able to get him onto this show. Here are some thoughts from Josh DeBonis. I, I've always been interested in games since I was a kid, and I make games uh, both non-digital and, uh, and some simple computer games when I, when I was younger. But I never really saw it as a career, um, and I, I never really even thought about that it was a, a possibility of as a career. And I actually, uh, I went to college for music and I played saxophone, jazz saxophone primarily, and did that for, for quite a while. Um, but I had taught myself to program computers because I thought that's something that you needed to know to design games, which I just, you know, was doing for fun. And so I, I started to get some work doing programming and realized, oh, this is something I, I really enjoy doing. And um, uh, was, it was much easier to pay the bills doing programming than playing jazz. Um, not surprisingly. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so at that, 
well, once I started doing that, I, I got more into understanding like the possibilities of software development, and and I started designing some computer games on my own um, just to to release independently. Um, that was probably about I think around two thousand four, and um, so I, I did a, a couple simple games like that, and it was pretty exciting, uh, like the fact that that even a few people were interested in paying money to buy games that I designed. And I realized, okay, this is, this is something that could actually be a job and I really enjoy doing it. And I feel like I'm at least okay at it. And, um, then I, there was a studio here in New York called game lab. Their big hit was diner dash. Right. Um, but they did a number of other games and I, and I was always very interested in what they were working on. It was smaller, weirder, different games. And um, they uh, they were looking for a programmer for a project and, as a, a freelancer, and I happened to find out about it. I don't even remember how, and <laughs> I, and I got that gig, and that that was I think what really got me going as a professional doing games. Um, and really, I, I a lot of my career grew out of the contacts that I made there at Game Lab and the my design aesthetic definitely grew out of that the other game designers there i mean first of all everybody that i worked there i still uh, work with there i still know and oftentimes i still work with and in fact that's even where i met nick my current business partner he he was another uh consultant that worked there on, on another project and you know we just i think we met casually through there although we didn't work together directly and so I, I, I did a lot of uh, freelancing while I was also doing my own independent games, which that's what turned into Sorta Soft, my, which was my company. And then uh, about two or three years ago, Nick and I, uh, we essentially merged our studios to form Bumblebear Games. And so that, and that's our main focus now. But, you know, we each do other other projects too outside of that I and mean, we teach he teaches at the school of visual arts i'll teach at the nyu game center um i just put out a tabletop game called isle of monsters you know so we're always doing other things as well um, but that yeah that's that's sort of where things have led me sure i mean it's no it's no surprise to me that i had a hard time pinning you down josh you're all over the place you're a busy guy you've how do you manage to, you know, kind of organize your life and keep track of all these different projects? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. It, well, I will say, I don't think that I'm very good at, at managing myself <laughs> in that sense. I'm very sure. bad at saying no. And I, 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 it's something that I'm constantly striving to improve, which is to, to not start new projects. And, I mean, it's funny because I very often find myself in the middle of a project, saying to myself, how did this even happen? Like There was never any one moment where I said, yes, I'm going to do this game. It's just like certain things come together, and before you know it, you are halfway through a game. It's kind of weird. Um, I think part of it is just because the way that I work is so iterative that you don't really know what the genesis of anything actually is. And very often... A game will start in one place, and many iterations later, it's a completely different game, and it just it got there so incrementally, you didn't see it happen. And so, I think a big a big challenge for me is is actually trying to 
narrowed down the number of projects that I'm working on. I've also really been trying to. I, I mean, I, I you know I, I do I work hard and I work a lot of hours. So I've been trying to balance my life a little bit better too, and like spend a little less time working on games, and um, and the time that I do spend on it, making it more meaningful. Um, and particularly focusing on the game design aspects. I mean, with a small studio, I find myself doing a number of tasks. Um, even though my title is game designer, um, I do a lot of production work, like managing the team and managing the schedule and the budget, um, as well as some programming, although that I'm doing less and less of these days. But I, I, so I'm trying to like get myself more focused, I guess. Sure, but I think having such a wide range of skill sets is um, is fantastic for you. It's great that you understand so many different areas of game development and game design. That probably lends itself to you being a great teacher at uh, you know the NYU Game Center. Or actually, as I was doing my internet stalking of you, my obligatory stalking, I found <laughs> that you actually um, are teaching a course after Play NYC with Playcrafting, right? Oh yeah, that's right. So after. Uh, I think it's shortly after Play NYC, I'm teaching a class called, I believe it's called Arcade Game Design Basics, and uh, the, I, I've taught it a couple times before at Playcrafting, I, you know, I updated it a little bit each time based on what I'm thinking about and what I've learned, but it's the, bas- the, the basic premise is, here are the factors you need to think about when creating an arcade game, or even a, any kind of game that is intended to be played in public spaces and as well as like looking at other arcade games and what are the tricks that they're using to to work in that environment because it's a really there's some really unique challenges you have to work through you have much like compared to if you're used to designing games for at home or mobile you have first of all you have so much less attention uh that that people will give the game because they're distracted they might be drunk they're with their friends they are, uh, they, I mean, they're they're in an arcade with maybe hundreds of other games that are all making, uh, you know, have bells and whistles that are trying to distract the players to go play those games. And so you have to really hook them very, very fast, and it has to be incredibly simple. the The layout of the controls is so important, and and yet you have a lot of power too because you have the ability to completely design and customize those controls in a way that you can't if you're doing a home game you know you like if you if you're doing a console game you have to work with the 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 controls that are there for you know for the controller um including all the extraneous buttons that you might not be using but with an arcade game and that with if you're designing an actual cabinet you can you can limit it to exactly how many inputs you need and in fact i think that encourages you to use even fewer, and I mean, almost all the arcade games that that we've done, or even prototypes, it's almost always very, very simple controls, like a joystick and a button, or two buttons, or even just one button. And um, so I, uh, I think also a lot of what I talk about in that class can be very applicable to people who are showing non-arcade games in a public setting. So like now it's it's very common to to show new games at 
places like PAX or Play NYC or Playcrafting hosts a lot of these other events like in New York for people to, to show off their games and demo them to either other developers or to the to the public. And a big mistake that I often see is people just putting the game, the same exact version of the game that you might download through Steam, on the show floor. And I sure. think that that's often doesn't really work for a lot of games because yeah. people don't have time to go through a tutorial. They don't. Or they don't have the patience. Or even if they do, if they spend a lot of time with it, they're blocking other people from playing it. And then you know, so you want to like, uh, ideally, throw people right in the center of the action and um, have a simplified version of the game, or at least simplified dedicated controls. You know, there's a lot of those tricks that you can use that I think. I'd love to see people taking advantage of more um, in that environment. I'm, I, I am starting to see more of it, and I, I, I hope that's a trend that keeps growing. Well, this is all the more reason why people should take this class, right? If they're in New York after Play NYC, they should check it out. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would love to, uh, to have as many, as many people as possible in my class. I mean, and it's I, whenever I teach a class, it's very collaborative. Um, a lot of discussion, a lot of experimenting, and uh, you know, I get a lot out of it too. I, I always learn stuff from from everybody in the class. I mean, the, everybody has great ideas about this. So I actually saw that you are planning on uh, giving a talk at Play NYC as well. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So, so Nick Mikros, who is my co-designer on Killer Queen and many other games. Um, Tomas Picuña, who is the lead designer of Black Emperor, myself, and I, I believe it's going to be a, one of the players from the Killer Queen community, will all be on a panel. And I, uh, we'll basically be talking about uh, the new arcade and what that means, I think especially as it pertains to New York City. Um, and I think two aspects, like what does it mean to design games for that context, but then also just, you know, what's happening in that space from a player's perspective and why is it so exciting? Um, and I think largely leaving a lot of that up to the audience to, to steer us. Sure, that makes sense. And I think that's probably the right way to go about it is, you know, that that flexible um, aspect of kind of just making yourself available to the people and, and you know, figuring out what people want to learn and what you can offer them. That's very cool. At the end of every episode, I do ask my guest to share a piece of advice, something that has been true for you, has resonated with you recently, and that might be true for others who, you know, maybe just need a, a boost or are looking to get into the industry and could use some guidance. Uh, what, what is something that you want to send people home with today? Yeah, I think for me, a really important aspect of making games is to surround yourself by, with things other than games and to, to be cautious not to get too uh, too focused just on just on games. I think um, Nick and I, we both come from different backgrounds. Mine is from a music background, his is a visual art and comics background. And that influence has been so critical to us as far as just seeing things um, with a, a different perspective and, and in a greater context, I think. And um, I think it's very dangerous now that there are there's so many resources for learning about games and learning about game development. 
and so much access to games in general, that it's easy to just, if you're interested in that, make that the only thing that you surround yourself with. And I think that's really dangerous. And in fact, like, I, even though I did come from this different background, I think over the last 10 years, I kept getting more and more focused on, on games. And now I'm having a little bit of a realization like, okay, I need to kind of back off a little bit and have some of these other influences back in my life in a creative way. And I mean, not, not just being around them, but, but doing them and participating in them and being part of those communities. Um, I think that's, that's really critical. Josh DeBonis, president of Bumblebear Games. Even though Josh's audio wasn't the best, I was really struck by some of the awesome insight he had on design and various forms games can take, so we're going to definitely bring Josh back onto the Indie Insider podcast in the future to take an even deeper dive into his thoughts on design and indie video games. Of course, you can follow Josh on Twitter under the handle at Josh DeBonis. That's J-O-S-H-D-E-B-O-N-I-S. You can also follow at Bumblebear Games and Killer Queen Game on Twitter, and you can visit KillerQueenArcade.com and BumblebearGames.com. My name is Zach Dixon. I am the creative director at a studio in Nashville, Tennessee called IV. Um, we are an animation studio, so we primarily work with, I would say our average client is tech companies. So we work with people like uh, Netflix and uh, Amazon and, and Reddit and all, all those good people to, uh, yeah, make them animated videos. That's right. Our next guest is Zach Dixon, a guy who knows a ton about what art and animation means for your game, what it's like starting a company in an unexpected area, and what it's like to make your very first video game, which is what he's doing now. Man, I went to school for music. I, I started touring um, in, in school. My, my school had a little kind of like a touring band that went around and we played like youth camps and stuff just to kind of promote the school. Um, and yeah, we needed kind of visuals to go behind the screen. Like, but we had a big screen that we toured with and I started just kind of messing around in After Effects and I threw, threw that stuff up on Vimeo and before I knew it, just kind of, it was kind of earlier days of Vimeo and there wasn't so much you know, going on and people were contacting me from all over and in school I was freelancing just kind of, um, yeah, making, making animations for people. Um, and then I met my business partner in school and he's like, Hey, I think we should start a studio together. Um, and we moved to Nashville, Tennessee. This is about like 2012. Um, and yeah, we just started a, a little studio out of the first floor of his, um, house that he was renting. And, and yeah, we've, we've, just been growing ever since. Now we're in a, in a nice studio space inside of a co-working space called Weld. Um, and there is seven and a half of us now. So nice little, nice little crew. Sure. So. What is it like being in a co-working space? Is that a positive experience? Yeah, we like it a lot. Um, we kind of have our own, we have our own space. We've got like, you know, we got a door and everything. And, um, but then that, that connects to a kind of a bigger, uh, creative community. It's, it's entirely like creative focused. Weld is, there's one in Dallas as well. Um, and yeah, there's like a, a, a place to shoot. They've got like a nice, uh, kind of studio space. There's meeting spaces. Um, this recording booth that I'm in right now, which I used to record 
um, our podcast as well. Um, yeah, and and just the general creative community is awesome. Um, there's yeah, it's just so great to kind of. Um, I don't know, be out here with all these these other freelancers and, and creative studios. Plus, there's free beer and coffee being made all the time, so that that's a, a positive. So let me ask you this: Why Nashville? Uh, this is a series about oh, yeah. New York and about a a well, New York City's first dedicated gaming convention. Yep. But you are not in New York. No, no, we are not. <laughs> um, man, that 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 is something that we talk about and think about a lot. Initially, it was. We were starting out, like we were very aware of kind of where we were talent wise. We had a lot to figure out. And we still do have a have a ton to figure out. Um, but we didn't want to start out in a place that the cost of living was so insanely high. And I don't know, I, I feel like we would have had a really hard time starting with where we were in New York or LA just because of the just crazy amount of talent that is is all around. Um yeah, so that's kind of why we started here, and and now we like it here. It's it's a great size, um, uh, town, and and cost of living is is rising, but not nearly the places it is on the coasts. Um, we we barely do get any work in Nashville, so we are kind of realizing that that is starting to hurt us just because the the budgets aren't aren't quite as big here. Um, but we we make a lot of city trips. We and and none of our work requires us to be local. Like um, I mean, we we've done some some Hollywood work with um, some some great pe- the great people at at Bad Robot, and and even with them, like even with their local local vendors, like they don't ever like pop in. It's it's still something that you do over the internet, and so. Um, um, yeah, so we've we've really enjoyed our, our time in Nashville, and I think we'll be here for a little while. So being landlocked and being in Nashville has has not been much of a hindrance for you guys. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, we we have been a little jealous recently of of some people who maybe have a little bit more of a local clientele to kind of fill in their slow spots. We had a we had a bit of a slow season at the beginning of this year, which was a little little frightening. Um, but it seemed to be a little bit industry wide, at least from a lot of people in that that we've talked to some of our friends' studios in other cities. But it seems like a lot of a lot of those people have been able to call on those local like regulars uh, to kind of fill in their slow spots. So that might be the one thing that we've missed out on uh, just because there aren't too many companies that that are able to kind of value animation at the price point that it takes for us to produce the kind of work we want to make. Sure. And I mean, you're making some pretty high quality animation. I mean, this is, again, I, I can't overstate this enough. The stuff that I've seen on your website, um, it's actually www.iv.studio. Yeah. Um, it's good stuff. This is Thanks, really man. cool. Man, yeah, for sure. Um, so let's let's dive into uh, you just a little bit more, and, sure. I, and I say that because I want to talk about the fact that you have a two week old baby. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. Um, yeah, that's been it's been awesome. Um, her name is Isabella Ray, um, Izzy for short, or Is, um, and she is wonderful. Um, still figuring it out. Like man, I. Yeah, first one. So like, I there's not there has not we've not arrived at a new normal yet. I took the you know the first week off, and then um, last week I was kind of in and out of the office, just making sure things were going well. And um, yeah, and I'm just kind of slowly easing back into things. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, what is it like to? And and you're probably still kind of you know learning. This is all kind of fairly new. But you run your own company out of Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, you produce, you know, some creative projects, art. I mean, this is not easy work that you're doing. How do you balance work and family and, <laughs> sure. you know, all the different projects and, and running a business and, and all of that? It, it seems like a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's it's going to be a challenge more and more moving forward. I mean, up until this point, um, my wife was a teacher um, and she's since she's taken at least this year off just with all the all the baby things going on. Um but man, that that kept her super busy. Just lots of like homework and um, lots of lesson planning and, and all that stuff. So so weeknights, I was kind of able to second shift it a little bit, which which is where I kind of threw my time into Bouncy Smash, the game that we're working on. Um, and yeah, so that's that's been really fun. I mean, I I really we just kind of enjoy hanging out together. We go to coffee shops and she'll grade papers and I'll um, indie dev it up and. Yeah. So that, but now that's kind of that's kind of all different. So I've my my work is becoming much more contained to um, at the office or you know, but from a for a little bit more of like a nine to five. Hopefully, that's the plan. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's I would say it's just really challenging, and it's something that I. I probably struggle with every single day because it's very difficult for me to turn my brain off and stop thinking about projects. And yeah, no, man, it's a struggle. I, I don't think I've got it, got it figured out. Some days I'm good at it and other days I, I fail miserably. Um, so we'll see. You and me both. I feel the exact same way. Like even just about this podcast, like it's going all the time. Oh yeah. Um, it's just always in the back of your head, you know? Yeah. Uh, so you touched on it just a little bit in there. Let's go ahead and dive right in. Sure. Uh, you know, we've talked about animation. We've talked about Amazon and Netflix. But why are you on a podcast about indie <laughs> video games? Yeah. Well, for the last, it's tough to say when it all started, but let's say at least three years probably. I have been, I've always been interested in making a game. I've always thought like, man, I want to make a game. Like I have, I have lots of goals for my life. I want to direct a feature someday, um, most likely animated. Um, and I want to make a video game and, uh, yeah, I, I had a little bit of background in coding. Like I've always kind of enjoyed tinkering with computers back since the windows 95 days in my parents' basement, just kind of like tinkering around building computers and things. Um, yeah. And so just started diving into it a, a little while ago and we are working on a game called bouncy smash and we are taking it um to its first public outing at play nyc in a few weeks so we are trying to get ready for it so dive in a little deeper what is this game bouncy smash that bouncy smash yes <laughs> it is a um mobile game where you are a bouncy ball and you bounce around on other robot bouncy balls and you try and get super high combos and it's colorful and action-packed and it's kind of hard. It's got some roguelike tendencies. Um, I think it's super fun. So I'm really excited to get it out there and see what some see what everybody thinks of it. So. So you said it's a mobile game. What has it been like developing a game for the mobile space? Good things, bad things? What do you think? Well, I don't really have anything to compare it to, to be honest. It's been it's been a huge learning curve. I've actually rebuilt it from the ground up. This will be my third time. I started on um, I started in Xcode. I, I learned Swift as kind of like my first programming language. Um, and it was going okay. Um, I, I started to realize kind of the limitations for what I wanted to do um, pretty quickly. Um, 
and then I moved from Sprite Kit and like Apple's kind of built-in physics engine over to Cocos 2D, which like um, a lot of popular games like Angry Birds and even like Limbo and things are built on. Um, but still, I, I realized that like art-wise, I, I wanted to do a little bit more than I could figure out in that. Um, and then I discovered Unity, which was amazing because we, I mean, as our studio, we use tools like Cinema 4D all, all the time to work on our projects. And it plugged in so well with it. It made the kind of art creation um, really fast and really plug in well with our team that really has no indie game experience at all. Um, and yeah, and once, once, I, once I hit Unity and went through a few tutorials on their website, and it, I was hooked. I was sold. I was like, all right, we're, we're starting it over one more time and slowly learn C Sharp. And yeah. So now as far as like mobile goes, the trick is, is you know, the game runs at a, at a great, very consistent 60 frames per second on the iPhone 7. Um, and now I've got to figure out how to get it to also do that on a few other phones that are not as fast. <laughs> so that that's a challenge. So I'm looking into like, you know, we we it's 3D, so we're doing some lighting. So I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, how baking lighting and and you know setting up different different um, resolution settings and all, all kinds of things. So um, yeah, every everything is it just seems like a, a massive hurdle that must be um, learned from the ground up because it's our first game. But man, I I am just really enjoying. It. I'm really enjoying the process, um, and I'll keep doing it as long as I keep enjoying the process. Fair enough. So. You said you are premiering it. You're showing it for the first time. Yeah, I mean we've 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 shown some videos on Twitter and stuff, but we haven't like we haven't brought it to a festival or or anything like that before. Um, I've never done anything like this before, so we'll we'll see how it goes. Um, we're we're st- we're still like a little bit away from launch. Um, still working on like a lot of the kind of free to play aspects and kind of fine tuning all that and making sure our leaderboards are working and all the um, back end stuff is solid and we've got a lot of art to finish as well too but there'll be definitely enough to be very playable so sure are you looking at a 2017 release yeah i think i think fall would be ideal um so that's coming up quick though yeah it is we'll see it and and part of the thing is i mean it's the thing that a lot of my friends ask me and a lot of people have played like when are you launching and it's like man if this is my full-time gig i would happily like set a release date but but there are, you know, I, I still spend and we, we still spend, you know, all of our paid hours are on animation projects. So when we get stuff, we got to take it. Um, so it's been, you know, a little bit at the mercy of like how much work we're getting um, animation wise at the studio. So and how much time your baby ends up taking up. Oh, I know. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And now so a lot of time that's been a lot of after hours work for me because uh, I've been the one primarily programming it apart from um, a lot of the database online stuff. Um, and yeah, so now I'm gonna have to find that time probably probably at the office from a, um, a little bit more of a normal work hour standpoint. So it might get a little slower here, too. So we'll see how it goes. Sure. Um, what do you know about Play NYC? Are you are you excited for this? I am. I, I'm a, I'm a little nervous just because I've never been to anything like this, and I don't want our booth to be super lame, and I also don't want people to hate this thing I've been working on for a very long time. Um, so, other than that, though, I'm very excited. I'm I'm super pumped to see kind of all the other games that are there and and hear some great talks, and yeah, and see what people think of Bouncy Smash. Get some get some good candid feedback. 
let's combine worlds a little bit. So we yeah. talked about animation. We're talking about video games now. But they are not exclusive by any means. There are a lot of indie developers out there who do not have the level of experience that you do with animation. What what sort of initial insight or advice would you give to those people who are trying to figure out how to incorporate great animation into their games? That's a great question. Um, I would say, I mean, there's so many like just like fundamentals of animation that are so great to have for a ton of different uh, industries and genres. Um, so like really picking up those core um, animation like principles, I think is great. Um, I mean, most everything like education wise and in, in kind of my industry is based around um, After Effects because we do a lot of kind of motion design and things like that. But I think a lot of the principles are the same. Um, and there's so many great learning places out there. Um, Learn Squared, for example, um, it's run by one of our kind of industry titans, Ash Thorpe. Um, and there's a great class with um, uh, J.R. Knest or, or Jorge, and he he runs through a great kind of animation class where you can kind of watch him teach someone um, his his keyframing skills and, and his kind of sense for motion. You can really pick that up. Um, yeah, I mean, the other thing is, like, just I watch a ton of animation. I watch it all the time. Um, I, you know, great channels on, on Vimeo are, like, Ice Cream Hater and Wine After Coffee. Um, I just go there and I frame-by-frame frame things all the time. You can, a pro tip on Vimeo is you can press shift and then left-right, and you can go frame-by-frame. Frame. And you can literally count out how long it takes, you know, this circle to move from here to here um, and and really kind of learn from timing and and keyframing that you are really attracted to stuff that you really like um, yeah and then doing your best to replicate it and then think like oh like man my, my thing is not as smooth as this thing um, and then going back and sometimes downloading people's videos and and really seeing how long things take to to happen and um, yeah, I think it's a little rambly, but... No, those were some real pro tips. I liked that. You were, you know, shooting out things people should check out. I was into it. That's like that's great. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about... Um, well, let's get into the podcast. So you mentioned sure. you also host a podcast. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I host a podcast called Animalators. The little catchphrase is curious conversations from the world of animation. Um, so I talk to mostly people in the advertising and motion design animated space, although I'm trying to branch out a little bit more into like kind of visual effects, maybe some, some gaming and some like feature television show type stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, you know, try and keep it under an hour and we just kind of dive into the stories of, of animators that I respect and admire and, and want to learn from. Um, and I try and yeah, just hear their story and, and talk about what's exciting them and, and some of the projects that they're working on. That, I mean, that's the reason why I do this podcast is I just want to talk to people about what they do and and you know get inspired for my own stuff it's great totally yeah and i think and i think there's something to i think a lot of times it can be very 
I don't know. I think the, the internet can be a place that instills a lot of fear in, in creators. I think that we can, it, it can be very daunting to look at, at people's uh, very polished work and careers and, and think like, ah, man, I'll, I'll never get to somewhere like that. But I think there's really, it's really powerful hearing people's stories and, and hearing how they, um, how they got to where they are and, and kind of strip back some of that, um, I don't know, that kind of fear of starting out that, that you might have when you're looking at other people's work and, and just getting to hear from them and their stories and, and hear that they, they at one point were just like you. And, and I think that can be really, really helpful. Um, and also just hearing how they made it, hearing how they, they got to where they are and, and maybe you can pick up a little bit of that and, and add it to your own story. That's something that we should pick on for just a second because you mentioned it is that yeah. fear of starting out. Um, you know, you, you already threw out a bunch of pro tips and, and cool, you know, uh, real technical advice that people can apply. But what happens if, you know, you're somebody who is just you know, too afraid to start or doesn't know where to start and you're just paralyzed? Because that's a, that's a real thing for a lot of sure. creators and a lot of artists. My, let's see. I mean, something that I, I, I think about a lot is like my career as a as like zoom out to the, the macro perspective. Like, let's say you are going to work from, um, let's say you enter the, the field at 20 and you're planning on working until you are 65. So you've, you know, you've got 45 years of career, right? So if you're, if you're 25, I mean, you're, you're only five years into a 45 year career. So you are literally at 10%, no, 11%. Exactly. So, I don't know. I feel like a lot of times, a lot of like, especially younger creatives. I mean, I feel this all the time. It's like, oh my gosh, like I, I have so much to do. I have so much to like catch up on. I, there's so much that I need to learn. And you're right. You do like, and, and my philosophy at this like kind of first quarter of my, my creative career is I just want to learn as much as I possibly can. If it interests me, like I want to get into it and I want to learn it. And I, of course I want to make the best work possible, but I also think that like sometimes we're like, ah, I'm not going to make the best work. And so it's easier just to not, it's easier just to not try. And it's easier just to not put it out there. And unfortunately, I don't know if I have any great tips of overcoming that fear of, of starting and the fear of sharing work and because I still feel that all the time. And I don't, I don't know if I'll ever necessarily overcome it, but I try and focus on the learning and the, and the joy in that learning process in, in acquiring all these skills that are going to set up the best work of my life as, as I move forward in my creative career. Um, and I think that that is probably, even if you're, even if you're farther along in, in your career, I think that that is the best thing to focus on is that like kind of joy of learning and, and learning new skills and, and I don't know. And, 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 and even to jump on that more, I think that like sometimes it can even be like you even box yourself in sometimes. It's like, ah, I'm just an animator. I just just do this or, or I, you know, I'm just a game dev. Like that's all I do. And like this might be a waste of time to come over here and learn that. Man, I can't tell you how many things that I have learned in this process of becoming of, of making a game that has has helped out on on our animation projects and and just those skills of, of coding and, and just like the thought process behind creating an efficient program. I mean, they all come back and they all work into um, 
into our animated work and and even just discovering new styles of people who are working in indie games has has just really um i don't know kind of enlightened and brought a new perspective to to our animated work even um yeah i mean we're talking about the fear of starting out and it's kind of interesting because even though you've had a, a you know already a fairly successful career in animation you're kind of still just starting out with yeah. game development yeah. and you've already mentioned multiple times in this interview that you have some fear about that oh yeah definitely i i am like some days i wake up and i'm like man people are going to love this so many people are going to play this they're going to share with their friends and then i'm like and then someone plays it and they're just terrible at it and they don't get it and i'm just like ah no one's going to play this this is going to be an utter failure i've wasted so much time um and that's probably the the thought that takes hold, and that's probably the most natural thought. Is like, man, I, I think you know, what if I've wasted my time? What if what if people don't like this? What if, um, yeah, what if this is no good? Um, and then I I have to like immediately jump back into just like, I'm enjoying this. I, I'm learning so much. I'm going to be proud of this when when I get to the the end of it. Um, and and those are the things that I think should matter. Zach, at the end of every episode, I do ask my guests to share a piece of advice, right? Ooh, You've already okay. shared a lot of advice, um, you know, pro tips on animation. You've shared advice on, you know, overcoming fear. But do you have anything else to send people home with today? Anything that's been relevant for you recently with any struggles or, you know, something awesome that I can put into some sort of sexy quote graphic that I can share later? I think that a lot of times in life, it is... You, you are often presented with like an easy route and a hard route um, and I feel like you almost never regret taking the hard route um, I, I think that that starting a business and starting a company is like as opposed to like going freelance or just like sticking it out on your own like starting a company and owning a company is like one of the hardest things that I have yet to do but it has also been immensely rewarding um, and so I, I would just encourage you if you if you are not doing something because it, it seems hard, I guarantee you you won't regret it later. Maybe that's a bad guarantee. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to guarantee things you can't you can't actually guarantee people. Yeah, come yeah, for yeah. You, There's Zach. no money back on this. No. <laughs> that was Zach Dixon from IV Studio. You can check out his upcoming game, Bouncy Smash, at PlayNYC, and you can follow him on Twitter at Zach Dixon. That's Z-A-C-D-I-X-O-N. You can also check out his podcast on Twitter under the handle at Animalators. And you can also follow his animation studio on Twitter by following at IV Animation. So hello everyone. I am Kati Naraki. I am art director and co-owner at Computer Lunch Games. We're based in New York. We recently opened an office in Dumbo, which is in Brooklyn. Um, We're a small indie game studio. We are currently working on a game called Mama Hawk. Uh, That's a mobile game and it's going to be out this fall. It's about a mother hawk who is trying to feed her babies by feeding cute fuzzy animals to them. Um, (laughs) Our previous game was a VR game. Uh, called Swing Star VR, uh, and that one is available for Gear VR and Oculus and Vive, and we're currently porting it to console. That's great. Cool. Um, let's just 
start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about how you got into video games in the first place and how you got into art direction and how you became the co-owner of your own company. So my background is actually in fine arts. I studied fine arts at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Uh, so I have not strayed very far from my roots in that sense. Um, when I went to school, I was mostly interested in drawing and painting. Um, and when I was growing up in Europe, I was not allowed to play video games or even watch Disney movies. So oh, wow. I was encouraged to read a lot um, and to immerse myself into things and do a lot of research. Um, these are weirdly qualities that have served me very well. Um, I started getting interested in games once I met my now husband and co-owner at Computer Lunch. Um, at the time, he was a freelance game designer. I didn't know that was a job until I met him. Um, so he, he was programming and designing Flash games for uh, OMG Pop and for This Is Pop and some other uh, sites here based here in New York. So he told me that um, while my interest in games was very cute, I was not allowed to contribute ideas to our games until I had become addicted to at least two games. <laughs> and then he proceeded to uh, give me many, many games and to see which ones I would uh, find attractive. So one day I came home, I was sat down and told, you know, to just kind of find my way through the world with the words, uh, this game is called GTA. And I said, ah, I don't know how to drive. And he said, neither does anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up uh, really developing a little bit of a Diablo habit as a result of this, um, you know, slight coaching. And um, I realized I really like puzzle games. And I also just really like working on different kinds of problem solving within the, the gaming world. So over the last two, three years, Enra and I have started really collaborating uh, in a big way on, on our titles. So originally I was hoping to talk to both you and Andrew. Unfortunately, Andrew was a little too busy to catch up with us today, but you guys are um, quite the duo and you're the duo that makes up Computer Lunch, correct? That is correct. Well, the, the team really does have a lot of members, but the uh, the members that work on every single game uh, is our Andrew and I. Sure. What is it like working with your significant other? Because that's a fairly unique setup. It really only works if you like the same things or at least similar things. So Andrew and I have similar aesthetics. Um, he also studied art and we, we both have a great love for surreal and commercial and bright pop art kinds of graphics. So we don't get in each other's way and we're both workaholics. So when you have that set up, it actually works really well. <laughs> That's excellent. I actually uh, was gonna say, I really love the aesthetic of your games. They're, they are kind of unique. They, they have their own you know, unique look and style to them, especially when you think about even the, down to the concepts of you know, feeding cute fuzzy animals to baby birds. Yeah, we have one game that um, got us a little bit of notoriety a few years back that consisted of a, a simulator for walking on a New York City sidewalk. So you basically have to avoid pedestrians. This, the boss is a woman with a double stroller, and then you get power-ups for kicking tourists. So 
in that description, you can see a lot of the tone of our games. We like strange, exaggerated, sort of tongue-in-cheek humor. And our graphics kind of match that. Sure, fair enough. I, I like it. You you know, listeners, if you haven't heard of Computer Lunch before, I really recommend you check out their website, um, computerlunch.com. It's it's full, full of some really cool stuff. It's very clear to see, you know, who both you and Andrew are as, as artists. Um, Kati, before I forget, I want to ask you a little bit about VR. So you said that your previous VR game, um, Swing Star, is that right? Swing Star VR, yep. Yeah. Um, Tell me a little bit about what it was like to work in the VR space. Yeah, that was actually a really great project. So Andrew's a bit of a tinkerer, and he and his friend John, John O'Meara, were teaching what at the time was the only VR class here in New York. So they've actually been teaching VR classes for a year and a half, which is ancient prehistory for those of you who are interested (laughs) in VR. Um, So Andrew actually taught some of the people who are now running very big VR programs throughout the city. But uh, John and Andrew were were tinkering uh, in in search of demos for their class, and they found a mechanic that they thought was really, really fun, um, the swinging mechanic. So they decided to develop from that fun mechanic into a game. So it's a little bit backwards from how games usually get developed. But it was such a new field that really we we could basically pick a um, mechanic and then work backwards from there. So Andrew and John started working on prototypes and started, um, you know, with the DK2 at the time, the Oculus um, Developer Kit 2, um, which is, for those of you who remember it, um, hurled-tastic. Uh, so it was not very optimized. So uh, they started uh, demoing it to everyone who was willing to get nauseous trying. Um, and they, they started refining different ideas and then bringing in sort of a team around them to, from the core mechanic, develop a game that at this point has, I think it's at 40 levels now. We're actually working on adif- additional levels right now because um, we're porting it to console right now. But uh, yeah, so we started showing it at events um, starting fall 2015 and uh, got really, won an award right off the bat the first time we showed it for best gameplay and uh, never looked back. We got very, very lucky with our timing. Um, so our game was featured on the Gear VR store two weeks in a row. Um, and I, I do attribute some of that to just being quite early. Uh, and sort of having a, a fun kind of unique uh, game gameplay mechanic and also graphics that were just a little different from the other stuff that was in the store. So we've, we've received a lot of love. Uh, we took it to PAX East. We had uh, lines. They, they yelled at us a lot because the lines kept blocking, you know, the walkways. So it was it was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that you, you won an award right off the bat. It actually seems like the game was fairly well received across the board, and, and even after release, you guys seem to do fairly well. Yeah, we've been very lucky. So again, Andrew and John are are another kind of dynamic duo. So we we like collaborating with talented people. Uh, John is is a very um, he's a VR enthusiast, and so he did a lot of the hardware programming and 
Andrew, like I said, is a tinkerer and then I'm really into graphics. So we managed to put something out that just had a lot of pieces kind of in place where there are a lot of games and experiences out there that were a little bit more half-baked. So it, it definitely helped us to sort of focus our efforts and just sort of polish it and finish it. Uh, in retrospect, you know, it now it looks kind of it, it's not as polished as it looked when, when it came out just because technology moves so fast, but um, we're pretty proud of it. So here's a question for you then, Kati. Uh, after you find some success in the VR space, why go make a mobile game? Because VR was just another game on the continuum of the types of games we want to make. So we don't think of games as the platform they're on, right? We don't think of games as necessarily being VR or mobile. We think of games as a fun experience that has its own rules and we kind of follow the game where it wants to go. So our games do tend to be mobile just because it is a more um, accessible platform. So that's, that's because we want reach. But other than that, we're not a VR gaming company. I think that would be a kind of you know, going going at it kind of backwards. Uh, instead, we really want to make sure that games that we make are just fun games. The other thing is Mamahawk was in develop. We started Mamahawk development about two years ago, but it was our side hustle. So we were working on it just one day a week. So it's now come to fruition. But uh, certainly we're not limiting the platforms, you know, that, that our games could be. So Andrew actually is uh, is working on a hololens project as well so we're pretty we're pretty open to playing around with stuff and seeing what what kind of works sure i like that a lot i like that kind of organic approach to just creating what you want to create and kind of following the game where it wants to go i understand that yeah andrew andrew is kind of our minister of fun so he, uh, we had a game that had really beautiful graphics and beautiful custom music that was kind of, that had a similar feel to uh, the music for The NeverEnding Story. It was very, like a big, happy romp, um, but it wasn't fun enough. And so Andrew didn't let us put it out. So really fun is, is the DNA that I would say goes through all our games. And we're really, really sticklers for making sure that you know we can deliver on that and that's part of why we really love um, these events because we can uh, we can see if they're fun because if someone hands you the device back after a minute or so it means they are being polite um, if if you have to kick people off of your game it means you're doing something right well let's talk a little bit about art in video games um, that's something that you know you know fairly well you've you actually studied fine arts um, at Pratt correct yep uh, tell me what you think about art in video games, and, and let's approach it from this direction. There are a lot of indie developers and aspiring indie developers out there who are listening to the show who are maybe struggling because they know that they have a game idea, they know that they want to make video games, and they maybe know something about programming, but not so much about art. And art is a difficult thing to nail down in this industry. What sort of things would you say to those people who, who maybe haven't quite cracked the art direction nut in their video games yet? 
I mean, that's really a question, not just about video game art, right? That's a question about just how, how does a person become more able to produce graphics that are sure. pleasurable to others. Um, I'm going to say what I say to every junior designer that I meet, um, and that is go out and draw and go out and look at art. Typically, people tend to look at the same three things over and over again in terms of reference. And so if they're very, if they're talented and they do, you know, they do sit down and try to copy it, their work will resemble those things. But ideally, you go a few levels deeper, right? So if you have a game that you think looks good, try to figure out what they looked at in order to make it look good. Um, if you like Disney graphics, figure out what Disney looked at, right? So there's any, any artist worth their salt has a large library of art historical styles that they're aware of. It doesn't mean you have to necessarily apply them. Um, but if you look at books on, you know, the art of Pixar or people like that, you will see that there is just a large amount of research that goes into it. So I highly recommend if you find stuff that you like, Google image search it, search it on Pinterest, see what else starts popping up when you put those search terms in, figure out which ones of those you like, and just keep going deeper. Don't be afraid of drawing people um, on the subway. Don't be afraid of going to a museum once in a while. Don't be afraid of trying things out, right? So a lot of, so mobile games, for example, um, since I've been looking at a lot of mobile games, there's definitely an aesthetic that you see, you know, cropping up over and over again. Mm -hmm. Unless you're the best at that aesthetic, you're, you're probably not going to be able to make your voice heard through your aesthetics, right? So you're, you're actually better off doing something that's a little bit idiosyncratic, that's a little bit different because it's your vision. And the way to arrive there is to just really um, accumulate a lot of reference in your head or on, on Pinterest or wherever and to, to just try it out, to sketch it out. I have a friend who's a very, very talented 3D modeler Shout out to uh, Chris Greener, uh, <laughs> who is <laughs> based in Austin now. He was uh, he was stolen by Zynga, but um, <laughs> he you know he he's a, a wonderful three D modeler and animator, and yet he recently discovered gouache, and so he's been painting with gouache, and his paintings are amazing. Um, things like that, those kinds of explorations, you know, they give you different color sense. You start to really develop your own taste. It doesn't mean you end up using paintings for your um, for your game. It just means that your vocabulary becomes more sophisticated, right? Like what how does how does light look, right? Do you is it is it okay to just use what the what Unity or Unreal gives you or do you want to actually control colors a little bit more? Things like that. And those subtleties do ultimately make a difference, I think, in the final, the final piece. No, I would absolutely agree. It's very much, you know, the difference between something that is average and, and something that is, you know, a step beyond something that's maybe, you know, quite special. I, I can totally appreciate that. I think a game like Firewatch is a good example, right? Where you just, you see the graphics and you go, what 
is going on. This is so amazing. <laughs> but then if you do a little research, you realize it looks like Art Deco posters, right? That's actually the, the 20s and 30s. And then if you get really into that, you realize, oh, there's actually a whole, like what, ha what happened in art around that time. And there's, you know, there's myriad sort of juicy bits of research right in there you can see my my research roots <laughs> shining through but <laughs> I, sure. I think it's fun right like i do actually i try to practice what i preach so i i try to draw i draw several hours every week um usually on the train and usually not in color just because it's a little messier but i i do think just going out sketching um is is a really really healthy thing for aspiring artists to do but also to solve problems right like these don't have to be great works of art if you're solving problems on the page that might actually end up being your graphic so if you are designing puzzle games um i think so uh for someone like uh, kurt beeg of simple machine uh, a very talented designer with a very distinct aesthetic very minimal beautiful games um, Pop the Lock uh, is is obviously one of the the breakouts of of his um, of his oeuvre, but uh, you know he sketches a lot. He you will always find him with a drawing pad under his arm, uh, just to you know because he thinks on the page. So I wouldn't I wouldn't think of graphics as a, a thing you put on top of a game. I would think of it as an expression of what what the game's essence is. I feel like we're getting a bit of a masterclass from you right now. This is exciting. <laughs> I hope that's not a bad thing. I do no, tend to go wonderful. very deep. <laughs> no, this is great. And I, and part of the reason why it's great is because even in the the um, overall catalog of episodes that we've had for the Indian Insider podcast, I, I, we've never talked about art in this way. And so it's exciting to talk to somebody who brings such a fresh perspective to it and you know, I consider myself somebody who draws stick figures very well, right? Um, and I think there's a lot of people that, you know, can make great games and, and feel similarly to me. But you're absolutely right that, the, you know, the, the research, taking in different art forms, exposing yourself to different art and doing that research is uh, really the beginning ways to open yourself up to, you know, much more. And then, you're right, doodling and, and just doing it. And that's something that we hit on a lot in every different aspect of video games is the more you do it, the better it'll get. Yeah, my general philosophy is if you find yourself enjoying it, it's worth investing time doing it. So if you enjoy doodling, do more of it. Don't don't feel like you have to you have to be ashamed of it, right? Like just keep keep adding to it. If it's incredibly painful to do it and it's the chore that you leave till the end, maybe collaborate with someone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so you can sort of pick your battles that way as well. Absolutely. Well, Kati, I want to keep this rolling. Um, so let me ask you just a few more questions, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I'll be happy to talk about being a woman in gaming if that's something you're interested in. <laughs> you know what? Um, why don't we talk about that for a minute and then... Uh... I'll keep it super short and not not um, not stirring the pot too much, just as more of a sort of a positive note to other female listeners, perhaps, that might, you know, to help them be a little more enthusiastic. It's a really important point. We, uh, when I was working with um, Dan Butchko of Playcrafting, and of course we'll talk about Play NYC and Playcrafting in a minute, 
um, he and I were both very adamant that there needed to be um, woman and female representation in every single one of the Road to Play NYC episodes. Um, and I'm very happy that you are here. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts, because you seem like you have something you want to share. It's not that there's a specific storyline about being a woman in gaming, but I do have to say that when I first started attending the gaming meetups in New York, which is about five and a half years ago, um, I did notice that for the first time in my life, I was not necessarily able to make my voice heard in conversations the way that I had grown accustomed. Uh, to in other interactions and I was a little bit taken aback by it. Um, I do think that that world is changing a lot. So with the advent of Unity and other tools that make it possible for other voices to be heard, uh, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean in a second, um, but I, I think there are more diverse voices being heard and it's making me very happy because as a consumer, it means there are more interesting experiences um, available to me, right? Because I certainly uh, don't want to play games that are not interesting to me, but I want to have the best possible selection of games out there at my disposal. Um, I think that things like Unity have really allowed uh, artists and writers and people who are not traditionally from the uh, you know, the, the sort of core gaming audience um, to take a crack at seeing what they can build. And it's resulted, I would say, in a crop of incredibly exciting games that are very sophisticated and that, you know, are have enriched the world of gaming by a lot. So I would say this is the absolute best time to start making a game and to work on games and to make your voice heard no matter what your point of view is. That was not always the case. So I think that's that's something that is, is worth stressing. And as a woman, uh, I certainly find that that it's it's changed the community a lot because there are a lot more voices in it and it makes me feel like, you know, it mirrors what New York is like. There's just tons of different people. So what do you think the future looks like for women in gaming and how do we continue to not only make things accessible to women, but make things accessible to all different people with all different stories? I think democratization of tools is really the, the fundamental step that had been missing. So I see it just getting more and more exciting, ex at least for the next few years. Um, I certainly don't know what's down the pike in, you know, eight or 10 years, but I'm, I'm very confident that in the next two to five years, there will only be more, um, more successful, uh, you know, games that are created by people who are not necessarily from the same point of view. Nothing against, you know, shooters or sort of genres that, you know, we've we've all played before, but I think there will just be other types of things available that we haven't necessarily defined yet. So I think the future looks very good for just people who 
um, who want to create a game, whether they be female or male or something in between or, you know, whatever your background is. Uh, Unity is also much more accessible in terms of, you know, the tools, the tool itself is, is free, right? So there, there's just a lot of um, accessibility issues that are solved with that. Um, and yeah, I think, I think we can, we can look forward to having just other, other people creating um, things for mobile other people sort of entering the, the realm of storytelling. Um, I've been very excited by Annapurna uh, Interactive, who, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Annapurna, but they are behind some of the most exciting movie experiences of the last few years. Mm -hmm. And they have now turned to uh, interactive experiences. And it's, it's a, a company run by a woman, a gamer, <laughs> a millennial. As someone who's very much of you know the new generation of creators, and I think creators and enablers, let's say, and I think that is really what it'll take, right? I I definitely think it's good for STEM or STEAM programs to be put into schools and all that, but ultimately, I'm a big believer in talent rising to the top, and that if you give people the ability to start a project without having to study something for four years or you know buy ten thousand dollars worth of equipment and licenses um, that you will see some exciting work so that is exactly the phase that we're in right now it's inspiring to hear uh and, I, and i'm hopeful honestly it seems like even in the past you know few years we've come a long way as the video game industry in terms of how we um accept and welcome a variety of different people and a variety of different stories and a variety of different works. My last question for you on this topic is kind of looking at the other side of the industries. You know, we've talked about um, the democratization of tools and the art and works that people are putting out there. But I know, you know, we've talked about it earlier. You also do a lot of the uh, quote unquote business work for computer lunch it's you know uh, answering emails and it's um, coordinating with people at conventions and things like that have you noticed your uh, gender uh, affecting you in the way you approach that work not really it helps that i've worked in a leadership capacity and in, in other roles before i got into gaming so i'm i'm certainly capable of sort of having a professional interaction and the truth is if you're dealing with someone from sony or from apple they're really just interested in high quality work so it's it's a very professional uh relationship so i have not really run into uh any roadblocks that i'm aware of right there might be invisible things but that that is not something that i've encountered uh, i will say that Everything that I've said, you know, refers to the scene that I've had the most contact with, which is the indie scene. So I, I certainly am not the right person to speak about, you know, <laughs> the the atmosphere at AAA studios. And I, I certainly don't know, um, or bigger companies in general, and I, I don't know what the, the themes are that, that are sort of, um, you know, on the minds of uh 
either female employees or queer employees or uh, employees of color I'm, or you know contractors or whatever the relationship is so I, I certainly want to make sure to also clarify my perspective and also you know what what I'm, I can actually speak to sure well hey I appreciate you being so open and honest about um you know, about all of this. It's something that I honestly feel we don't talk about enough as an industry, but I'm happy that this show can be a a bit of a vehicle for that. Awesome. I'm so excited. And um, this has been a really fun conversation. I'm, I'm definitely going to uh, be, be excited to hear everyone's contributions to it. Before I let you go, Kati, At the end of every episode, I do ask my guests to share a piece of advice, something that has resonated with you recently or has been true for you that might be helpful for others. And you've already shared a lot of really great things and a lot of fantastic insight, but do you have anything else you want to send home with people today? Yeah, I had a really wonderful teacher back in art school, and he encouraged us to find our own voice because as long as you imitate anyone else, you will never be the best. That's Kati Naraki from Computer Lunch. She's looking forward to Play NYC, where they'll be sharing Mama Hawk. And make sure that if you do stop by their booth, you let her know that Logan from the Indie Insider Podcast sent you to say hello. You can follow Kati and Andrew's work on both Instagram and Twitter under the handle at Computer Lunch. And as Kati puts it, Just look for the mouse sandwich. And that's it for week two on the road to Play NYC. Everyone who was on the show today is extremely excited about going to Play NYC, and they're all hoping to meet with gamers and other developers just like you there, so make sure you seek them out. And remember, if you don't have your tickets yet, you can get 20% off by entering the promo code INDIEINSIDER when you check out. One word, all caps. And hey, if nothing else, make sure you check out next week's episode of Indie Insider Presents The Road to Play NYC. It's the final episode before the big event, and Dan is coming back one last time with some exclusive announcements about speakers, featured guests, and exciting things that will be happening at the event. Plus, I'll share some exclusive announcements about what's next for the Indie Insider podcast, including our massive 50th episode celebration, which is right around the corner. If you have thoughts or questions you'd like to share, don't hesitate to send me an email at logan at blackshowmedia.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Logan A. Schultz. That's S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. Additionally, Indie Insider is now officially on Twitter, so you can find us at Indie underscore Insider, and you can find us on Instagram under the name Indie Insider as well. Finally, special thanks to Raghav, Daniel, Raquel, Jen, and Dorian over at Black Show Media, Dan from Playcrafting, and our guests, Joe, Josh, Zach, and Kati. All music in this episode is courtesy of Purple Planet Music. Make sure you join us here again next week for the final installment of Indie Insider Presents, The Road to Play NYC. I'll see you there.